Good evening. <laughs> At the same time. Great. Tonight we are continuing our study of Bible issues, translation discussion, lots of different difficulties that people perceive in the translation, specifically the King James, and, and looking at that and trying to understand whether or not there's an error in translation, or maybe we just need to dig to find some information. So anyways, that's what we're doing tonight, and last week we talked about unicorns and sodomites and a number of other interesting things. Tonight we're continuing our weird topics. We're going to talk about the cockatrice first. And if you don't know what the cockatrice is, that's fine. I don't have any idea. I'm going to explain what it is. Good. (laughs) So in Isaiah... Cockatiel, right? What's that? It's not a cockatiel, right? No, it's not. Okay. So in Isaiah 14, 29, it says, Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Now, I have a note here in my Bible that says, defining the word cockatrice, a fabulous serpent supposedly hatched from a cock's or rooster's egg and having power to kill by a look. The Hebrew means poisonous snake, viper, or adder. And this word cockatrice comes from the old French cockatrice, which means crocodile. So that sounds very confusing. (laughs) So let's talk about this. Uh, As I was studying, I found that this word is very confusing in its origin. Hmm. So it's really hard to pinpoint exactly where the term comes from in terms of what it's describing. And over time, words undergo lots of evolution. And cockatrice, I think, is a perfect illustration of this. So I'm not going to go into the detail history because there's a lot of information there and I haven't mastered it. So I'm just going to do my best to summarize this stuff. Cockatrice later in history developed into this myth that there's this hybrid bird snake creature. It's also known as the basilisk. And so it has the features of a snake and a bird. And if you look at different depictions, you know, sometimes it looks sort of like a rooster with a snake's tail and mythological serpent. It looks like a dragon. Some, me, the, ba- yeah. the basilisk sometimes looks more like a snake, while cockatrice incorporates more bird-like features. But they're yeah. actually interesting terms because they're used synonymously often in English writing. So what's being referred to? Well, one thing we can say for sure is when the King James translators were translating this term in Hebrew, sepha, that's the term, they were not envisioning a half rooster, half snake mythological creature. This term cockatrice was used before the mythical elements developed to describe a snake, a type of snake. Now, I think there's some interesting history behind this that we're going to delve into. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I think that the term cockatrice could very well be referring to what people would call a prehistoric reptile or a pterosaur, more commonly known as a pterodactyl. And there are some references in the Bible to support this connection. But the King James renders it as cockatrice 
in five different places in the Old Testament. Um, the only place that it actually has adder in the text and cockatrice in the margin is Proverbs 23.32. So the references are as follows. Jeremiah 8.17, Isaiah 11.8, Isaiah 14.29, which is what we just read, Isaiah 59.5, and then Proverbs 23.32. And in the margin, it reads cockatrice, even though in the text in Proverbs, it says adder. So when they were using the term cockatrice in their mind, they were envisioning a snake, right? a serpent. And in fact, if you look at some old dictionaries, cockatrice was a term used to refer to a serpent. And in fact, I've read some older commentaries where... You're talking about a snake. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I was reading a commentary and one fella knew that there was mythical connotations, but he said that many authors use this term to refer to a serpent that still lives today. Hmm. And so it didn't have the mythical association. So when they said cockatrice, they weren't envisioning something crazy or mythical. It was just, this is this. It was a, it was a term referring to a serpent. Now as to the exact identity of this serpent, there are debates about it. Um, Some people think that it may refer to a cobra. In fact, there's a very ancient depiction um, in writing and I think the guy's name, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's Pliny. Mm. He was a historian. We've already looked at actually some of his writing when we talked yeah, about the unicorn. Yeah. But he describes the basilisk. Mm. Cockatrice, basilisk were later used interchangeably. And the basilisk, the way it's described is moving upright, a serpent that moves upright, uh, a serpent that can attack you with its venom from a distance. And this is why eventually people saw the basilisk as being deadly to look at but it's somehow able to attack from a distance it moves upright and it has uh, a white circle on its head and that's why basilisk means little king because it looked like it had a little crown on its head and this is very very similar all of these features to a cobra so if you were to look at the back of a cobra uh its hood you can see that white circle when a cobra moves, unlike many snakes, it does move upright. It can move with its body and its head erect. And it can, many cobra species, can shoot venom out of their, their mouth from a distance. Out of their mouth, out of so their teeth, yeah. When you take Thanks. this strange serpent, not like normal serpents, right? and over time people pass down this tail, you can understand that over time it might be embellished. So it could be the basilisk, cockatrice, is just a reference to a cobra. Yeah. There's nothing mythical about it. Yeah. So that would exonerate the King James translation from any myths or fables because at their time in history, That's instead of using the word cobra, yeah. they would have used the word cockatrice or basilisk, yeah. which again are synonymous. Um, a viper, an asp. And, and those terms, uh, I think that in general they fit. Uh, yeah. Technically speaking, an adder doesn't lay eggs. And the cockatrice, I looked that up. I didn't know that, but I found that out as I studied this. Hmm. But a cockatrice does lay eggs because it mentions that yeah, in Isaiah. Right. Yeah, in, yeah. Um, yeah. So it mentions that um, in the text. So do cobras lay eggs? Well, indeed they do. So hmm. again, the idea that this is referring to a cobra, a cobra it seems very reasonable to me. Sure. Um, but I do want to talk about something else because in this, this verse that we just read, in Isaiah 14, 
it uses cockatrice and fiery flying serpent in a, a structure known as synonymous parallelism in Hebrew. So when it says, um, shall come forth a cockatrice and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Cockatrice and fiery flying serpent are put next to each other and they're used as if they're synonymous with each other. Huh. And we know that cobras don't fly. Right. So this suggests that perhaps cockatrice means something more than just an ordinary snake. Right. So it can, the terms used that way outside of the Bible in older English writing, but maybe there's something more to this. So if you were to read all throughout the Old Testament, you're going to find references here and there to fiery flying serpents. Uh, they're actually referred to in Hebrew as seraphim. And the seraphim, we're more familiar with that term being applied to angels, and because that was brought into the English language uh, straight from the Hebrew, rather than translating it in Isaiah 6, the word seraphim is, is transliterated, uh, which means if you're reading it, seraphim, you're not actually getting the meaning of the term, you're just seeing the term with English letters. Right. But elsewhere, the King James translators chose to render it as fiery flying serpent. So the term seraphim, I didn't know this for a long time, but it is used in a handful of places outside of Isaiah 6. And it refers to flying snakes that bite, and they're venomous. Now, is there any reference to these outside the Bible? Well, interestingly enough, there are actually multiple sources attesting to this fact. Hmm. So ancient Egyptian records note that there were fiery flying serpents, and I'm going to come back to that because it kind of ties into this whole cockatrice legend, sure. the idea of a serpent-snake hybrid. But Herodotus, a Greek historian, he talks about how in Arabia, he visited Arabia because he heard of these stories of these fiery flying serpents. And the Arabian guides took him to a place where the bones of these serpents were collected. And he okay. looked at them and he was like, they're surely enough snakes with wings. Wow. And he describes their flight patterns and, and a number of other things that were related to him by mm -hmm. the locals. Josephus in his account, talks about Moses. Now Moses, before he was exiled from Egypt, right. he was a commander of the Egyptian army. And he went down south and he conquered Ethiopia, huh. which back then Ethiopia was just anywhere in Africa that was south of Egypt. Yeah. So he went south and he conquered the Ethiopian nation, but between him and the Ethiopian country was a stretch of wilderness inhabited by fiery flying serpents. And he knew that to get, huh. his, to get his army through this area without having them bit by these venomous snakes, he had to find a way to get rid of them. So he basically took a bunch of ibises. I hope that's the plural, but an ibis referring to basically a stork-like bird. Okay. And ibises are portrayed on hieroglyphics. Often. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he got those <coughs> and he brought them a whole bunch of them south. And the ibises killed the fiery flying serpents. So they're natural predators. So they gobbled them up. They had themselves a serpent buffet. And he was able to go through the land with his army and, and then. So what's this from? You said Joseph. This is Josephus. Josephus. Like this whole account is in Josephus. Did, that's crazy. Yeah. Where did he get it from? <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, there are a lot of things that Josephus mentions, especially about Moses, that are they 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 strike me as being very historical. Yeah. The way they're related, they don't seem fabulous. Um, but they're not in the Bible. So hmm. Moses would have told his life to people around him. And yeah. I'm sure those stories would have been passed down. Hmm. So there were records outside the Bible. We know you had the book of Jasher and uh, you have other texts that are mentioned in the old Testament. Mm -hmm. And some of those texts may have been passed down 
huh. to a certain extent in the writings of the rabbis yeah, yeah, yeah. and Josephus. So I think that it's reasonable to say that some of this stuff could very well be true. But the point is, the idea of the fiery flying serpents being in this area, the Egyptian Arabian yep. area, it's confirmed by multiple sources. So when you include the Bible, there's four sources that I know of that talk about these fiery flying serpents. So what are these things? There's nothing today that matches this description. Uh, some people have tried to say, well, there, you know, in certain places in the world, there are snakes that will jump out of trees and they kind of glide down. But these are not gliding serpents. These are flying serpents. I mean, and even yeah, in the yeah, way yeah, they're yeah. described in the records outside the Bible, like Herodotus, as I mentioned, they, they fly through gorges. I mean, this is like, you know, they're able to migrate <laughs> uh, some yeah. distance. These are not jumping off cliffs and gliding we're not down. Bats here. We're we're, talking, no, yeah. these, these are serpents and they're described as snake-like. So do we have, we have anything from history like this? Uh, yes, we do. We, we have ancient reptiles. Yep. Uh, one is called Rampharynchus. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I say that a lot. Yeah, you do. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I'm lazy. I'm not going to go and watch all these videos, how to Let's pronounce see. it. Yeah, right. Whatever. But Rampharynchus is a part of another family of flying reptiles. Pterodactyls are different. Pterodactyls are the beak reptiles. Okay. You know, they don't have any fangs and they yeah. don't have long tails. They, they okay. really don't have tails at all. The Rampharynchoids, they have lots of teeth. So very snake-like in that regard. Sure. And they have long tails. Huh. So if you were to see them gliding and moving around or even moving around uh, on the ground, they would have a snake-like appearance. Um, also, we know that they moved upright. So they didn't move on their bellies. They the way they moved, um, their their body was kind of lifted up, sort of like the cobra. Yeah. But the but their but the rear part of their body would be dragged along. <laughs> so probably be pretty creepy to see up close. So I, I mentioned that because the ancient record describing the basilisk in Pliny, he says that right. it moved with its body upright. Huh. And I haven't seen anybody else make that connection, but it was something that came to mind when I thought about the fiery flying serpents. But um, a lot of people try to explain it away, the fire flanks, because there's nothing outside of um, the biblical text that today we can use to verify the biblical text right. because these animals don't live anymore. Right. And if you say, oh, well, they were seeing an animal that used to live. In fact, I've even seen somebody online say maybe the stories of these these fire flying serpents were inspired by dinosaur remains that were found and of course that's always the go-to of course it is because they they can't see these things alive according to evolution so we have to say they saw the bones even though all these records are saying that they were alive when they saw them (laughs) um no none of the stories say that we found the bones and that's why we came up with the story but um if this is the case that firing flying serpent and cockatrice are seen as synonymous here and that means there's some overlap in the terms. So my conclusion is that cockatrice, in general, refers to a highly venomous snake. It's a high, sure. highly venomous serpent. Okay. Yep. Uh, however, sometimes, like in Isaiah 14, it does overlap with a that, yeah. with a different kind of serpent. It it overlaps with a fiery flying serpent. So I think that we could say that in general, this is a category in which you could put a number of venomous snakes, whether they're flying or they're moving around on the ground. Right. We look at this from a perspective that's a lot more uh, specific. I don't want to say a lot more scientific. We just are more specific. 
in the way we classify animal species. You know, we have the Linnaean hierarchy and we divide things up in a very, very detailed way. It almost so detailed you get lost in all of it. And that's because there's so much diversity in God's beautiful world. Amen. But back then it wasn't like that. So how would you describe animals? If you go to Genesis one, it talks about the beasts, the cattle, mm. the creeping things. Yeah. Like there's no really detailed no, classification. That's all. Yeah. So I think the same thing could be said of some of these Hebrew terms that the Hebrews would have said, okay, well, the King Cobra, that's a Cepha. And the firing flag serpent, well, that's a type of Cepha, you know? And so there's overlap. Gotcha. So not all um, Cepha or Cephot, I, I don't know what the plural is there. It's either Cephim or Cephot, but uh, not all of those are flying, but many of them are. Mm. And so again, there's that overlap semantically. Um, but there's another possibility. Some people think that this could be a, another extinct kind of animal called an Archaeopteryx. Uh, Archaeopteryx uh, is a bird that's yeah. really controversial, like evolution creation debate. Okay. People would debate about it because it has characteristics that look a little reptilian. It's got a very long tail. It's wow. got claws on its wings and it's got teeth, like sharp teeth. Yeah. But it's a bird. Yeah. Uh, it's been proven that it's a bird, but it's a bird that has features that dinosaur. <laughs> it's it's a it's a bird oh, that that's that's where the birds went. I mean, that's where the dinosaurs went. <laughs> that's exactly what people What's try the, to say, right? It, right, yeah. But again, the it, missing link that has been thoroughly disproven in this case. But sure. yes, that's what some people still try to maintain. But I think the the whole point that I'm trying to make here is that uh, you have to take terms that are available to you. Back then, did they have the word pterosaur, pterodactyl, rhinocerus? No, because that only came up in the 1800s. Exactly. Right. So what do they do? They they take words that they have in the language and they do their best with them. Mm -hmm. So, anyways, uh, last thing about that, and then we'll move on. Um, there is an ancient uh, Egyptian story, or not story, but myth. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's this is something that they would do in ancient times. They believe that. The eggs of the ibis, that stork-like bird. Sometimes, if uh, a stork, if the ibis ate too many snakes, then the venom would cause the eggs that the ibis laid to hatch as flying serpents. Wow. Now, this is pretty bizarre. Yeah. But understand this from a primitive perspective. Okay? These storks are eating lots of snakes. Part of their diet. Yeah. Okay. Venomous snakes. And you have eggs. Okay. Yeah. Which are pretty similar. Okay. There are lots of eggs that different species, but they look similar. And then you think this belongs to an ibis and it hatches and a snake comes out. So what do you do? Do you conclude, oh, well, this is a different egg. It belonged to another species. Or do you say, no, this egg belonged to an ibis and they ate too many snakes. <laughs> That's what they said. So it's, or it's, it could be that. You know, it ate the snakes. The snakes had the eggs in them. And when they came out, it didn't get fully digested. And therefore, I mean, there, there, are, there are lots of rational explanations, sure. you know, but I mean, the point is they came up with this idea that it was ate too many snakes. It came out as a fire flying serpent. But the point that I'm trying to make is this idea that um, an egg could hatch and out of it would come a bird reptile hybrid. That's the gotcha. later version of the cockatrice myth. And it's funny that way back when in Egypt, they had a story very similar to that. Huh. And when we put together, okay, that story, 
fire flying serpents coming out of ibis eggs. And then you got Josephus and Herodotus. And you got the Bible. It seems like these snakes were definitely there. And they seem somehow connected to this, this kind of convoluted story about the cockatrice. So mm. I don't think there's an easy way for anybody to just say, okay, this term cockatrice, this term basculus, they go back to this. It's a pretty neat path. You can trace it back. I think it's very mixed up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it, it kind of gets tangled. But it seems that the cockatrice, all the way back in Egypt, is referring to a snake that has wings. And it was probably a real fiery flying serpent. Okay. Uh, you know, we would call it a dinosaur today in modern lingo. And lots of stories developed around it. Mm-hmm because it was bizarre to them mm-hmm. at this time in history. Perhaps a lot of these animals are practically extinct and so they're unique and people come up with all kinds of crazy stories when they yeah. see something unique. Right? So anyways, cockatrice could just be a reference to a venomous snake like Cobra. Yep. However, it could be something uh, more than that. Fiery. It could be a fiery serpent. flying serpent. Uh, all right. Now let's turn to, if we're in Isaiah 14, just flip over to, Isaiah 13. That's pretty convenient. It's um, backwards there, buddy. Um, (laughs) Isaiah 13, verse number 21. And we're going to talk about the Seder. Now, if you don't know what a Seder is. Is it not the same Seder that I'm thinking of? Is that what you're trying to say? It's not Seder as in the Passover meal. (laughs) Uh, The Seder, S-A-T-Y-R, is a Greco-Roman woodland deity so a half animal half human hybrid that cavorts in the woods with wood spirits with the naiads and the dryads and they were symbols of sex they were perverts and if you look at ancient greek pottery the depictions are pretty gross um but they're demonic beings I mean, even if you look at the Greek myths, they're known to be perverted and mischievous beings and given over to lust completely. And when you read the Bible, you'll find in the King James a number of references to satyrs. Modern versions don't use the word satyr. Um, I think it's to distance those versions from any mythical connotations. However, the Hebrew term sair, while not literally meaning satyr, okay? Mm. In the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon, if you were to look up the definition, it's going to be satyr, demon, hairy, or he-goat. So it, ha- it has a, a range gotcha. there, but satyr is listed as an acceptable translation in that lexicon, which is still very much respected and used today by Bible scholars. Yeah, And so it's describing an, a being that's hairy, humanoid, and demonic. And man, part, part beast. Yes, and, yeah. and so the King James translators, when they take this term sire, not only does it sound like satyr initially, just hearing the word out loud, but what it means, it also sounds like a satyr in, in its meaning. And so when you're taking a word from the English language, the English language at this time in history, people were very much familiar with Greco-Roman myth. Sure. I mean, it, it was part of the classics, right? Knowing yeah. these things. So... Uh, Seder was the best way to translate this term. And honestly, it really is today because most people, um, they're pretty familiar with certain elements of Greek and Roman myth. And so a Seder, I think a number of people would know what it is. I don't think that it's, it's that 
obscure that people would be like, what, what's a Seder? I mean, you might have somebody you run into who doesn't really understand it, but, um, Seder is still a, a valid translation based on lexicon, but I want to talk about it a little bit more, um, uh, in Leviticus 17, seven, the same term is used, but I haven't even read Isaiah. Have I? No, I haven't. I'm jumping ahead of myself here. So uh, Isaiah 13, 21, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. I mean, sorrowful creatures and owls shall dwell there and satyrs shall dance there. So we'll talk more about the owl reference because in Isaiah 34, 14, it uses the night owl reference again. And in the Hebrew, the word is Lilith. And Lilith is pretty controversial. Absolutely. So I want to talk about that. But in Leviticus 17, 7. Sorry, I'm just going to back you. I just stopped you for a second. Sure, stop me. ESV, the owl, they say, it says there will there are ostrich, ostriches instead of owls. Oh, wait a second. No, it's got owls here too. Ostriches as well. I'm sorry, I missed that. So read, read the whole verse. Well, let's read it. Let's read it in MEV. Yes. Okay, so MEV is, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie down there, and their houses shall be full of owls. Ostriches also shall dwell there, and shaggy goats shall dance there. <laughs> shaggy the goats, animals, right? yeah. The, so, the ESV says, but wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. There ostriches will dwell. I can't speak today forever. And there wild goats will dance. So wild goats, goats, shaggy goats, goats. I don't know where the ostriches come in. That probably is a rendering of the, the same new, word rendered for owl. Well, ostrich, no, the doleful creatures is what it says in the New King James has ostriches as well. Hmm. Wild goats. We'll have to go back to that one. Yeah, uh, okay. I'm not prepared to discuss sorry. that. Anyways, I'm but, sorry. No, but seventeen seven. Let me get a little bit. Yes. In Leviticus 77, they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils after whom they have gone a whoring. This shall be a, a statute forever unto them throughout their generations. Here I have a note in my Bible, evil spirits, demons, that's what devils means, obviously, but the Hebrew is hairy ones or satyrs. I like that. It kind of amplifies it a little bit, but these are, these are beings that were worshipped by the Canaanites. If you were to read in Deuteronomy 32, 17, it said that, that the people of Israel went worshiping other gods that their fathers didn't know. So these were gods that were introduced to them when they entered into the promised land. Right. Gods that were not familiar to them. False gods. Demons. Okay, so he says they weren't gods at all. So they weren't really deities. They were just masquerading fallen angels. But satyrs is interesting because it... it it consistently depicts a type of demon as being hairy, yeah. shaggy. And even today, a symbol of Satanism is that of a goat, it, the Baphomet. It, it, right. And, and male goats are nasty, nasty, nasty. They stink. They're, they, they're just nasty. And it, and it fits. It could be right. Yeah. Yeah. It fits perfectly. Billy goats uh, are just, ugh. And so that's been a symbol of Satanism. Uh, I think it goes all the way back to Canaanite religion. And I would say Canaanite religion goes all the way back to a demonic origin. So are they kosher? I don't, I think the goats are, yeah, you can sacrifice a goat. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can. Yeah. But um, goats were associated with false religion. But what's interesting is they're consistently depicted as being in the wilderness. Like right. the say the Sayreem. The yeah, the, the well, they're right. in the wilderness. And even in the New Testament, you know, the man who had the Legion of Demons in the wilderness. And where where does Jesus get tempted? By the devil. In the, the wilderness. wilderness. And so what many people, many Bible scholars have pointed out, there is some association in the Bible and in Judaism between demons and the wilderness. Mm. And I've tried to do my best to wrap my mind around that. And there are certain things I just won't get the answer to, but my theory is that God has set boundaries up. I think that God has basically said, all right, demons are only allowed so much influence over mankind. Right. Um, I think that there are laws at play here. I think that God allows us to have choices. And I think that there are times where God sends in the cavalry for us as Christians. There are other times where God holds back the army and, you know, tests us in our faith, all the details regarding that mm. don't know. And what makes me a little frustrated is when people take these ideas, which there might be some basis to them and they add lots of detail right. and they create these practices that are just not, they're not explicitly described in scripture and they sure. make, they make it a big deal. And so I don't believe that we should take spiritual warfare and make it more elaborate than the Bible gives us. And try, and try to control it. Yes. I think that whenever we talk about angels and demons, we need to not go beyond what's written. Yes, angels are there warring on our behalf. Exactly how they do that, we don't know. We just know that they do. Right. Demons are trying to tempt us. How much can they get away with? Well, we know that as we studied just this past Sunday, that the one who's born again keepeth himself, and the wicked one cannot touch him. So they are limited. I don't think the Christians could be demon-possessed. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So God sets boundaries up. So I think that when it comes to humanity, God may actually set up a boundary to where demons are at times forced into the wilderness. Mm. Maybe that's why they're so much associated with it, because they're out there, because that's not where people live. Right. They live out there where the animals are. Sure. And so they're kind of associated with those same animals. Uh, so. As far as the he-goat translation in modern versions, I think that that's, I think it's not good enough. I think that it's not necessarily wrong because the word can be translated he-goat. However, in certain contexts, it's clear that it's talking about something demonic. And he-goat does not express anything demonic. It's just the goat. Seder expresses both. It expresses goat qualities or animal qualities, but it yep. also expresses something that's intelligent yep. and demonic. Yeah. So Seder is superior translation as far as that's concerned. Um, the LXX or Septuagint, they rendered it as um, daimonia. So they translated this term Seirim as demons. Oh. So they just put it straight up demons. Um, that's interesting. In Isaiah uh, 34, 14, that's the one that I wanted to talk about some too. It puts two interesting things together. It says, the wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island or the coastland, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow, and the screech owl shall also rest there and find for herself a place for rest. So this is describing a very desolate place where these demonic entities are. And one could say that these wild animals are a type of these demons. There there may be some connection there. Um but it, it says Seder, and then it says Screech Owl, and 
in the KJV margin, and we don't really keep the marginal readings anymore. I don't like that. I wish that right. when they made KJV editions of the Bible nowadays, they would include the marginal readings because they're very helpful. But here it says night monster is a possible translation of screech owl. Like what? But it's yeah. Lilith. And so the King James translators knew that there was a demonic association with the term Lilith, at least in later rabbinic writing. And so they held out the possibility that since this term appears right next to Seder, and Seder is demonic in its association, then maybe Lilith is too. Lilith was a, a female demon um, in rabbinic Judaism that uh, you know attacked children. Very, very scary stuff. You know, mm. stuff of nightmares. But Lilith is often depicted as a seductress. Lilith is depicted as having the features, um, in some cases, at least in some parts of her, her body, of an owl. And so she's very much associated with owls. In fact, they found a very ancient depiction of Lilith. And she's got, you know, besides, you know, her feminine features, her feet have uh, claws like an owl and she has wings like an owl. And so she's a hybrid being that's, got yeah. owl features but yeah. she's clearly something else you know she's not an animal she's not a human she's something other just like the satyr which has features of animals and humans and is something other now this is going to get a little weird but i want to share this with y'all um about lilith lilith according to jewish tradition some jewish tradition very late jewish tradition was the first wife of adam there's no evidence right. for this whatsoever from right. the Bible. So it's very late. Uh, in fact, people talked about Lilith long before this myth arose, and they made no connection between Lilith and the first woman created. So we can pass that off as rabbinic speculation, tradition accumulating over time. So there's nothing to that. Uh, but as far as Lilith being something demonic, there may be something to that given the context of this verse. Um, the Vulgate renders this Lamia and early English translations like the Wycliffe Bible renders it Lamia. Lamia was a medieval she-demon that had animal characteristics. And Lamia is basically like a vampire, like a female vampire. Huh. So there, there's a history of translation where, you know, this term Lilith it's it's just it's interesting, you know, the way it's been it's treated. And even the King James translators, while they render it screech owl, because it can mean that, just like Seder can mean he goat. But it can also have a, a deeper connotation than that. So whenever they rendered this screech owl, they put in the margin night monster because they thought, well, owl is definitely included in this word. But maybe mm. something more is included too. Because we know Lilith has owl characteristics. So a, wow. a satyr has goat-like character, shaggy characteristics. So there's more here. It's layers of meaning, rather. Huh. So what does this mean? Well, bringing this to uh, the present, a lot of people in our area here in North Georgia, they're very much interested, at least for Taurus' sake, they're very interested <laughs> in the Bigfoot. You know, right. they, they love presenting Bigfoot. Well, what's interesting is here, some scholars believe that the word sayer, satyr, should be rendered something like baboon or ape because they think that it describes an ape-like creature. 
And this is from the Easton's Bible Dictionary. So huh. basically what the word means, it can, and it's translated as hairy in certain places in sure. the Bible, like not goat, just hairy. So it describes some hairy demonic being that lives in the wilderness. Sounds like a big foot. And it does. And I've, I've yeah, talked to on, one, I've, I'm on boy. I've <laughs> talked to one fella, um, and, uh, he's written lots on, you know, dinosaurs and the Bible and he's a creationist, but his name is uh, Bill Gibbons. And he's talked to some friends up North who had their own quote unquote Bigfoot encounter and sure. they were Christians. And there were a number of people there as a few guys there and they saw it and they were immediately convinced that it was demonic. And so wow. they together prayed in the name of Jesus huh. that God removed it and it disappeared in a puff of smoke. And so I emailed him about it. I was curious. And, and he said, uh, like I have it on their good word and he's not a, a crazy guy. Like I've listened to yeah. him. He's very, you know, solid Christian fella. And he said, I'm convinced that it's demonic. And he's like, that's why I, I warn people against being too interested in Bigfoot, because I think that it's not like a lot of these other things that he pursues that are maybe living dinosaurs. He says, I sure. don't think this is an animal. I think it's something demonic. Uh, in fact, in the Pacific Northwest, back in the early 1900s and late 1800s, they had some stories of this tribe. It was considered a tribe of people, but not normal people, gigantic mm. people who were very hairy apish but they could speak and uh, they kidnap people and they were called the seatics huh. in the language of the the tribe in the pacific northwest that named them and i don't remember the exact tribe but uh there are lots of stories of the seatics and today many people make a connection between this tribe and the bigfoot but the seatics the way they're described is they're very demonic they're cruel they're cannibals but they're they're giant and they can they can speak human language Huh. And they're shaggy. They're very, they're very hairy. So that kind of, and they live very reclusive in the wilderness and they only interact with people rarely. And usually when they do interact with people, they terrorize it's and it's yeah. always bad. And so when you read that, it's like, okay, well maybe this is just all, you know, hocus pocus. But when you read in the Bible, these interesting references to something that's demonic, shaggy, and it dwells in the wilderness and you don't see it mentioned just once, but on a number of occasions, it makes you wonder, maybe there is something Because there's to never, this. ever any, um, any signs of this thing, right? They've done searches and everything. Oh, yeah, I mean? like, nothing. They've yeah. never been able to find any, uh -uh. any physical evidence. Phys thank you. Those are the words I'm looking for. Physical evidence other than, oh, we found this Bigfoot. And that's why they get it. They call it a Bigfoot because I find his footprint and. Yada, 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 right? But it would make sense if it was demonic because they only show up when they want to be seen. Exactly. And, right? and they're often associated with supernatural events. UFO phenomenon, very yeah. common in Bigfoot sightings. Interesting. It is interesting. And another thing that's interesting about this, a couple things. One, a lot of the Indian or Native American uh, legends about these seatics. Sure. They call them magicians. Like they can do things yeah, like they yeah. can, they can change their appearance. They can go invisible. Yeah. Um, they can alter their voice in ways that humans cannot. Mm. And so they do things that defy natural explanation. Definitely. Definitely. Demonic. And they're connected with giants and cannibalism. 
Well, and, then you could then we could talk about giants, but and not the, today. But yeah, yes. not today. But there there are these stories like out in Nevada. Uh, there's a story about uh, the Lovelock Cave, yeah. red haired giants, shaggy giants. Think gyro is, that, is he napping? He's I mean, he's napping, yeah, or dogs napping and making some noises. But anyways, uh, out west, there's a story of the the Paiute tribe in the 1800s that they. They had this tribe that neighbored them. They were cannibals. They were giants. They were yes. shaggy, covered in red hair, and they'd kidnap people and eat them. And so the Paiute tribe got together, the Braves, and said, we're tired of this. And so they went and they set a fire in front of the cave. And whenever the giants you know, inhaled the smoke, they came out to the edge of the cave to escape, and then they were shot by all the Indians. And eventually they were all killed. Huh. And uh, these remains were discovered. Yes. At the turn of the century. So yes. they, they were discovered. And, you know, what happened to their remains is we, remains till this day. A big question, yeah, right? We've had that discussion. Right? But the point, the point is, and I don't want to get too off track here, but the, the Seder concept, a shaggy demon that lives in the wilderness that's found in the Bible often. There seems to be some connection between it and the Bigfoot phenomenon. In my mind, they're too similar to just pass off as nothing. Absolutely. I could be wrong, but yeah. I think they're similar. And it is a worldwide phenomenon. Like this idea of wilderness demons yes. is all over the world. Yeah. And the Bible talks about it. Yes. So whether these are fallen angels or whether they're Nephilim, like Genesis six talks about, we're not getting into that, but something's happening there. And sure. uh, it's definitely bad. Interesting. So that is the Seder. Now we're going to look at one more and uh, we probably won't finish this tonight, but we'll start it. It's nine thirty one. Goodness gracious. Um, do we want to continue, Scott? Sure, do we want to do, do one more? Do one more yeah. Let's do one more. Okay. So Jeremiah 51, 37, Jeremiah 51, 37. This is just one reference. I mean, we could have picked any of them, but might as well do Jeremiah 51, 37. It says in Babylon shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons and astonishment and an hissing without an inhabitant. So Babylon shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons. Dragons. I have a note here in my Bible. Mm. It says it's an obscured Bible word used to translate one Hebrew term, meaning dragon slash dinosaur, sea slash river monster, or serpent slash venomous snake. So a very broad semantic range. And what? often... Where did they get jackals then from ESV, MEV, <laughs> NLT? Thus the discussion, Scott. Thus the discussion. Um, I don't get that. Like, So I'm going to give you some statistics about the ESV, and it probably lines up with the MEV here too. Dragon is found five times in the ESV as a singular noun, and it's not found at all as a plural. This is all Old Testament. On the other hand, the KJV renders the singular dragon six times, just one more, but it renders the plural dragons a total of 16 times. So 16 times in the KJV in the Old Testament, you'll find dragons. In the ESV, you won't find any of those. Huh. So there's a number of changes there. Uh, the New Testament references are identical in both versions, so we won't get into that. So why the difference? Well, the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon gives the definition of the Hebrew term tanning as follows. Serpent, dragon, Sea monster. You'll notice that jackal is not listed in any of those. So why jackals? It is believed 
It is believed okay. that jackal is the meaning of the underlying term tannin because, according to one view, the word tan is the word for jackal, and, and tanim is the word for jackals. And so tanin and tan are just alternate spellings of the same term. Tanim and tananim, the plural in Hebrew, those are alternate spellings of the same term, and they all refer to jackals. So what evidence do we have that the term refers to jackals? Well, we have none. We have no evidence. In fact, in the Hebrew, the term that would normally be used to refer to jackals is shual or shualim, and it's rendered as foxes in the KJV, but jackals in other translations. Psalm 6310 would be an example of where this term is used. Mm. And it, shualim always refers to a jackal or fox-like animal. Okay, again, we talked about Hebrew, you know, is not yeah. as specific as we are in how we classify animals, but shualim would be the animal you're looking for. A scavenging canine. Shualim. But that's not what's used no. here in all these places. Okay? So there are a couple different ways to respond to this. Now, the Answers in Genesis article that I'm going to refer to does a good job of, of making a case that the KJV is correct and that the proper translation is dragons. However, I don't really like the way they reach that conclusion. Okay. But I'm going to explain what I mean. So... First, this is what they argue. They argue that tan and tanim refer to jackals. So tan is the singular jackal. Tanim is jackals. Now this is very similar to tanim and tanim. So they say that the reason these modern versions are translating it as jackal or jackals is because it's so similar to the word for jackal. However, it's not the it's same not term the same for jackal. Uh, they would say that tannin or tannin refer to monstrous animals, whether terrestrial or ocean dwelling. So, I mean, whether you want to say sea monster or dragons or dragons of the deep, as in those dragons that live in the ocean, like whatever, there's some options there, but it doesn't refer to jackals at all. All right. And they make a good case for that. However, it's not, and this is my contention, it's not certain that uh, that the words tan and tanim do refer to jackals. I'm not convinced of that. Mm. Uh, as I've looked on websites and, and read different articles, some of them, you know, just blog posts, but I've read some other more scholarly articles by people who know Hebrew. And one guy is pretty frank and says, we have we really have no idea what tan or tanim means. Like, huh. it's, it's believed that it refers to jackals. But he says, we don't actually know that. So my contention is that tan and tanim are alternate spellings of the same term. However, my contention is there's no association with jackals, jackals at all. Right. Okay, so I don't think jackals has anything to do with the words tan, tanning, tanim, or tanonym. I don't think right. any of those four terms have anything to do with jackals. I think if you were going to refer to jackals, you'd use shualim, a different term. Sure. So the King James translators, they consistently render this term as dragon. dragon. Sometimes they use whale because whale is included in the range. I mean, tanning would be any extremely large animal that lives on land or lives in the ocean. Today, whales fit the bill. So, But whales are not exclusively the way one would translate this term because there are land-dwelling tanim or tanonym, and whales don't walk on the land, contrary to what evolutionists say <laughs> that they once did. Right. So what this means is 
it's a broad category referred to something of immense size, something monstrous. Mm. Whales are included in it, but there's more to it than that because there are references to tanning that's clearly reptilian. Like in uh, Isaiah, find the reference here on my notes, in Isaiah 27.1, it refers to a, a crooked or coiling serpent or dragon of the deep, and it's referring to Leviathan. In uh, Ezekiel 29.3, it talks about Pharaoh as a dragon. It's symbolic. But if you read further on, it talks about scales. Whales don't have scales. So this term, while it can include whales because they're monstrous animals that live in the ocean, not monstrous as in violent, obviously, but um, it's a broader term that includes also what we would call today dragons. Like we would call a scaled monster reptile that lives in the water. We call that a sea dragon. Absolutely. Or if you want to be scientifically correct, we call it a marine reptile, a prehistoric marine reptile or dinosaur. Sure. But back then, the term dragon was a perfectly acceptable term. Sure. And many people today wouldn't argue with that if they agreed that they did live in the water and you saw it as a human. Yeah. It's a dragon. Okay. So why is there a difference uh, or a a disagreement between the answers in Genesis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the answers in Genesis article admits that tan and tanning refer to jackals. I, I don't believe that there's proof for that. Sure. Um, so in the King James, there are a couple places where it renders it um, as dragon or whale, when if you were to look in the original, okay, it's going to say tanim. Now, the Answers in Genesis article would argue that tanim refers to jackals. Sure. So tanim is dragons. Yeah. Tanim is jackals. Yeah. Um, so they would say when you look at those places, like in Ezekiel 29.3, Ezekiel 32.2, that there was a scribal error. Oh, so they'll, they'll okay. say that it's not Tanim. It shouldn't be read that way. Sure. It actually was originally Tanim. And there it makes sense because they would say Tanim refers to a dragon. And so it, that's what it's referring to. It's not talking about Pharaoh as a jackal in the sea. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. So they would say there was a scribal error, and over time, the change went from the word tanning, which appropriately referred to a dragon, yeah, and it transferred to tanim, which is the plural form for jackals. And they would say that that's really where things are going wrong. However, the King James translators, they had that text in front of them. They had tanim in front of them. Right. And they rendered it as dragon because to them, that's what it meant. So if you could talk to one today, and you know we wish we could do this a lot, talk to people from the past, but if you could talk to one of the Hebrew uh, scholars that worked on these verses, they'd probably say that tanim and tanim, all these words I've just mentioned, they're pretty much different spellings of the same exact sure. word. And it's, it's commonly <clears throat> known that Hebrew has changed in spelling over time. Sure. And so... Just and, as English has. And, and sometimes it's not even necessarily that the spelling has changed. It's just dialect. Right. Where you live. Like, I know that if you if you were to buy a New King James from Great Britain, there is a British spelling yes, edition and there's yes. an English spelling edition. Yes. So we shouldn't be you surprised. An American. Yes, American English. <laughs> yes. American. <laughs> Sorry there. But uh, there are differences in spelling even today. Right. That are to use side by side contemporary. So I think that when you're reading in the Bible and you see tanning, tan, tanning, tanning. Yes. I think that they're just differences of spelling, but they mean the same thing. And that's why the King James translators, they consistently render it as 
dragon, 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 and they never change. They stick to their guns in every case. The only place where they will render it differently is occasionally they'll put in the margin whale. Sometimes they'll put whale in the text and they'll put in the margin dragon. That's what they do in uh, Ezekiel 32.2. They render it as whale, and in the margin they put dragon. So they believe that it could be it could be translated differently. Now, whenever you get to Isaiah 27.1, where it's clearly talking about a serpent, they don't put whale because they weren't dumb. They knew that whales aren't serpents. So they render it as dragon because it fits there. Uh, in many other places, they render it as dragon, as they should. Occasionally, they do render it as whale, but they, they were right in doing so because in Lamentations 4.3, it refers to tannin. Okay. And these tan- it says they nurse their young. Was it 14.3? It's, it's uh, Lamentations 4.3. 4, 3. So it talks about the sea monsters. That's the marginal reading. But yes. the sea monsters, um, I think, actually, let me look that up real quick. I'm in Jeremiah. I can flip over one book. I want to make sure I got this right. Okay. Lamentations 4, verse 3. It says, even the sea monsters draw out the breast. They give suck to their young ones. So uh, it renders it as sea monsters there. It's tan. It's it's tan, tanim. So, uh, or jackal. They would. (laughs) So that's what some people think. They think that that's the way you should render is jackal. But again, the King James translator said no. Tanim does not refer to jackals. It refers to monstrous animals. Clearly, here it's referring to monstrous animals that are able to draw at the breast and give suck to their young. So what? monstrous animals live in the ocean that breastfeed whales whales so you wonder why they didn't just go with whale well because they could have done that but they they wanted to be a little more general i suppose to kind of you know prevent being wrong okay maybe it's not as specific as whale when ironically in other places they do use the specific word whale like in genesis 1 21 they render it as whale so uh, let me let me just get stop me yeah go ahead you're more confused here because, um, okay, so Lamentations 4.3. No, let me, let me back up. Um, let me go to, where were we at? Ezekiel yes. 29.3. 29.3. It was in, um, let me see. I'm sorry. In the, in the ESV, in the MEV, everywhere it was saying, it was saying monster, sea monster. Yes. Okay. For the same word, someplace else, they were using the word jackal. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, that's, so it's like, okay. So it's a scribal gonna, error. Yeah. Well, that's, no, it's here. You're saying this, but here you're saying it's Yes. This. And they would say the reason for that is because whenever the Masoretes were copying down the Hebrew Bible. Sure. I get, I get the scribal error. Yes. John. So, so they, they would have what's called the, the cure which is the read. This is what you need to read if you're reading it out loud. Okay. Read this. Okay. And the read is different than what is written. The, the written is called ketiv. So if you would actually copy it, if they were copying the Bible, they would always copy exactly what's written. Sure, they never changed absolutely it. Absolutely right. Never okay. changed it. But when they were reading it out loud in the synagogue, they wouldn't always read what was actually written. They would read the margin because they believed that that was probably the right way. So it's called a textual variant. Okay. Okay. It just dealt with their practices, you gotcha. know, when they were reading it out loud in the synagogue. And so when you get to this place in Ezekiel, when it talks about um, the Tanim, 
it is tanim and it that's the written and so they would say we're not changing it however in the the read portion they would say this was originally tanin so they would say there was a change there was an error but we're not correcting it because we don't do that. We don't we don't change the Bible. So gotcha. it came down to us this way. We're pretty sure that it originally wasn't this way. Yeah. But we're not going to touch it. Gotcha. And so that's why they put those margin references in there. So that's why the modern versions, they're going to say sea monster there because they're going to go with the read portion of the Masoretic gotcha. text. But the KJV translators, I don't necessarily think they would hold that same opinion. I think they would probably say, this is what the text says. And, 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 and Tanim is probably no different than Tanim. It's, it's just a spelling difference. Uh, that's normal, normal variation. Yeah. So Tan, Tanim, 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 they're all saying the same thing. And in fact, this is well known too in Hebrew copying. Uh, there is the, uh, it's called the plene spelling of a word, which okay. is the full spelling. And then there is the, it's called the defective spelling, defective kind of is a misnomer. It doesn't mean necessarily wrong. It's just a short form. Okay. So certain letters will be dropped out in the defective form. So if you take tanin and you set it next to tan, tan would be the defective form and tanin gotcha. would be the, the full form. So that's right now that's my working view. I think that makes sense. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's what, yeah, it's, it's confusing. MEV for elementate. Yeah. Four three is even the jackals, even the sea monsters in KJV. Yes, it's it, just it's and even, so the King James New translators. King James says jackals. It's just yeah, yeah. It, so so there's obviously a difference in philosophy. I think that illustrates yeah. why the modern version is different than the King James. Yeah. The King James, it's like wait, this is what it says. This is what it means. Yes, they consistently translate it. Uh, they never violate the sense. Okay, sure. while they may vary from dragon to whale. They never go as far as jackal. They're not yes. going to do that. But the modern versions will, and it's because they're playing around with variants. Okay, so they're saying, "Oh, well, gotcha. this is a scribal error." So we're going to pretend as if that error actually took place. Right. Instead of actually looking at the verse and translating it properly, they say, "Well, it's an error." So, like for example, when it talks about the tannin in Lamentations, the Answers in Genesis article says well it didn't originally say tannin because it's clearly not referring to tannin i mean t you know dragons don't you know breastfeed their young reptiles right. don't do that so originally this was tannin jackals but the king james translators don't render it that way because what is it in hebrew it's tannin so we're not going to change it right. we're going to leave it the way it is you know so stick with the text. And I think that shows that they trusted in the preservation of scripture. Right. Um, and I do too. So that's, that's where I stand. But uh, that is the big dispute. The KJV stands apart from all the modern versions because it renders dragons, the plural form of the word, 16 times in the Old Testament. And every one of those times that you look at a modern version, it's going to be missing every one. All yeah. 16. It's going to be jackals. So it's, it's just. I get why you. It's not that you're, you know, a KJV only guy, but I get it. 
based, you know, the, the fact that you will tend to go to the KGV in always because of this type of thing. It, it, it frustrates me because I, I don't like people approaching the Bible as another book. Yeah. Now, and I will, I won't, I'm going to ahead and just read this to you because we're not going to finish this up tonight. We'll wrap it up with this. And this kind of explains my methodology. Yeah. So I'm going to read this to you. I, I was thinking about like, how do I explain exactly what I think about Bible versions? And this okay. is what I think. So imagine the KJV is a car driving down the road. There are boundaries on either side, which mark out the lane. The KJV sometimes swerves to the sides. Sometimes it stays right in the middle, though. But it never leaves the lane. Right. Now, due to the difficulty of Bible translation, that's the best one can ask for. As long as the Bible version is on the road, it's God's word preserved. However, due to textual criticism, which I do not approve of, modern versions of the Bible, they're not even on the same road. Right. They're on a completely different road. So, though modern versions are acceptable in theory, I think that none can claim the importance of the KJV because modern versions are corrupted to some extent by the methodology behind them. Mm. So rather than approaching the Bible from a preservationist viewpoint, like God's preserved his word, right. this is it. Okay, We know no translation is perfect. I don't think the King James is perfect. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think, I think that obviously I think that it's without as, so far, I haven't seen any places where, like I've said before, like, man, that was dumb. Yeah. Like, why'd y'all do that? Um, uh, I may not always disagree with it, but I right. can see why they said what they, they said. said. Yeah. And so they stayed within the lanes. I think yeah. they're swerving kind of close to the edge a couple times, Sure, but they're never off base completely. And so I think that the KJV won't lead you astray in that regard, but I also think that there's no such thing as one-to-one correspondence perfectly when you're going from mm. the original language to English. And I, so I think that if you, if you were to do complete correspondence, you'd have to add a lot. It wouldn't be one, one word to another word. Right. Because like we've already looked at tonight and on other occasions, and sometimes Hebrew is very robust in, in the sense that there isn't as much vocabulary in Hebrew but there's a ton of meaning mm-hmm. in layers and shades that they're just not easily brought over into English. Mm. So in English, you can bring over the main idea, the essential idea, mm-hmm. and you can get a, a basic picture of what's being, you know, intended, but uh, you're going to miss out on something sometimes, not right. all the time. You know, sometimes you can bring it over and it's yeah. fine, but in other cases, I think it's not so simple. And so that's why I think going to the original language is it's necessary for additional explanation sometimes. Um, and I will, I will say this for those of y'all who are listening and you know, some people may not like this and they won't listen to us anymore because of this, but I do not believe, no. hold up. I do not believe that the KJV is oh. inspired. Right. In the sense that the translators were inspired on the same level Absolutely that Peter not. and Paul and John and all the others were. Right. I don't believe that. Now I right. believe that God's used it in a special way. I'd have to be blind not to recognize that in my opinion, but uh, I don't think that it was inspired. That's a miracle. God never promised that of the King James. Uh, He never promised that of English. He promised that of Hebrew and Greek. Now, I think God has used the KJV. Well, of course, because of, okay, sorry. But I I think that God, I think that he puts his word in an obvious place. And so if if someone's going to ask me, well, how do you know which variants are the accurate ones? How do you know which ones are God's word? Well, which ones has God approved of? through his people. 
because I believe in the priesthood of the believer. Mm-hmm. And I, so I'm sorry, I don't believe the uh, minority of scholars are the ones that are telling us what God's word is. I think that the priesthood of the believer, that logic of faith leads me to say, where is God? Where has he been used? And he's right. been used in the traditional text. It wasn't until the late 1800s that people started saying, let's start changing our Bible up. Let's, let's change things up. Let's make some right. new versions. Let's revise some stuff. And it was all based on skepticism yeah. and unbelief. And that was not, that wasn't a grassroots movement of the priesthood of the believer. That was the movement of high church people who had already compromised on so many levels that they wouldn't be allowed to preach in many churches right. today. Well, and, and, well, yeah, <laughs> many churches are still faithful today, but yes. let's say back then, yeah. they, if people knew what these people believed, They'd say, you're a heretic. Get out of our church. Exactly. And these were the people who were the ones pushing for the new versions. So again, in theory, I'm not against a, another translation. Uh, but I think that if you want me to tell you where is God's word, like the variance, where, like which verses are in and which ones are out, the most obvious place that God has pointed out and blessed would be the traditional text. Yes. Specifically used through the King James, but the traditional text. So I don't believe the King James is God's preserved word in any inspired sense. But I think that there's nothing in the King James underlying that version, like the received text or the Masoretic text. Sure. I don't think there's anything wrong. Uh, so I would, I, I have to come up with some consistent methodology. I'm sorry, I'm never going to be comfortable with a scholar who says, well, I like this one, I don't like that one, and, and this and that. And, and, and arguing over every single verse. Yeah. God's word's got to be in one place in my mind. It's got to be obvious because that's the way God wants it to be. He's not a God of confusion. Right. And I think that a person who has faith can see him at work. And so if it's in the King James underlying text, that's God's word. However, yeah. when it's brought from the original to the English, it's not always brought perfectly over. And that's why it's necessary to go back and look it up and Absolutely. do some study. So to, to wrap it up, one example would be uh, Revelation 16.4. It says, um, let's see if I can remember the exact, uh, thou, thou wast, um, thou art, and thou shalt be. Mm. Uh, I'm sure that many of those who are listening have heard that before. Um, I want to find it real quick and read it because... They got it wrong. Uh, it's not 16.4, um, but it's in chapter 16. So where is it? Maybe you can help me out, Scott, if you find I'm it first. For it. It's, in, it's five, sorry, a 16.5. Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be. So we're familiar with that. I mean, I've heard that sung in hymns before. Mm. Which art and wast and shall be. Well, Every single modern version renders it differently. It's, who is and was and who is to be. And who is to be? Is that the MEV? MEV. That's good because that's based on the same text that King James is. Sure. So that would be unique. That's an outlier. But all the others would render it um, which art was, uh, was and is holy or is the holy one. Okay. Um, you are holy one who is and who was for you brought these judgments. That's ESV. Hmm. Interesting. Read another one, because so, I'm assuming uh, you got parallel versions. Yeah, I've here. got thing going here. Um, you are. This is NLT. You are just a holy one who is and who was. I'm sorry. Who is 
and who always was because you have sent these judgments. Huh. That's interesting. They're, they're lead, why are they because there there is here? a there is a variant that that says holy one. Do you ever you see that in any of the parallel versions? Um, holy one. Yeah, there's holy one, the holy one who has judged these things. That's the Catholic public domain. Who is and who was the holy one? The holy it, one. That's it. it. What's that one? Where is the whole? Uh, who is to be? Who is to be? It's missing in all modern versions. That is. It, and that it's missing in every single one. And it, admittedly, there I mean, are... the message. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there are... Um, there, there's a lot of debate about this one because there's not really a lot of support for this as far as the textual argument goes. There is some evidence that it was in use um, in Latin, and the Latin was based on something. It was based on Greek. But uh, even in even in the Latin manuscripts, there there are none today, none existing that contain this. There are no Greek manuscripts today that contain this. There is a few Greek editions that make notations saying that this is an alternate. Um, so Erasmus he has basically the same thing that's in our King James today. Uh, Art uh, Weston will be, <clears throat> but we don't have any modern Greek manuscripts available to us today that have this so why do we have it in our bibles is the question well if you were to really dig into it you'd see that the guy who made this greek edition that the king james is based on he gives his whole argument for it and he believed that it was in the original manuscript that he had in front of him he believed that the manuscript was of poor quality and so it was dropped out and based on the common expression throughout revelation it's mentioned several times Art Weston will be. Yeah. He says this has got to be the same here. And uh, since then, there has been discovery of a commentary, very old commentary yeah. that supports it. So, But I would say that, hey, we've been using this Bible right here for hundreds of years. And let's keep it that way. Let's keep it that way. I think that God supports it in the way he's approved of it in his church. So anyways, we got to stop. God bless. Hope you enjoyed.